The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. Today is Wednesday, September the 13th, 2023, and on behalf of the team here at the U.S. Army Heritage Center and War College, I'd like to welcome you all to our prospective lecture this evening, Mead at Gettysburg, a study in command uh, by Mr. Kent Masterson Brown. I was gracious enough to join us based on his 2021 book of the same name. We welcome listeners from all over the world on our live stream feed tonight. For those of you listening live online, please remember that you can submit a question for our Q&A at the end of the lecture by typing it into the chat room and we will include them in the discussion as time provides. My name is David Harkelrode and I am a historian here with the AHEC team. Tonight I have the honor of representing our team by introducing our speaker. A 1971 graduate of Center College of Kentucky, Mr. Kent Masterson Brown is professionally an attorney, receiving his JD from Washington and Lee University School of Law in 1974. In part because of his defense of individual liberty in the courtroom, Mr. Brown was named a distinguished graduate by Center College in October of 2014. Mr. Brown is here tonight as one of our nation's most distinguished Civil War historians. His 2000 book, 2005 book Retreat from Gettysburg, Lee Logistics and the Pennsylvania Campaign is recognized as a groundbreaking study of the final phases of the Gettysburg Campaign and has provided new perspectives on the supply and logistics of Lee's invasion and retreat from Pennsylvania. It received the acclaimed Bach Elder Coddington Award as the best new book about Gettysburg in 2005. He is speaking tonight on his 2021 book, which received Emerging Civil Wars Book Award of 2022. Uh, with no further delay, please join me in welcoming Mr. Kent Masterson-Brown to the podium. Everybody hear me? Is that all right? Is, it, uh, is the microphone working? Okay. Well, listen, it's... Um, it's an honor to be asked to come here to speak, and um, a uh, rather humbling experience for me. Um, as much as I adore things military, I was raised by a, a father who was a uh, World War II veteran wounded in the invasion of southern France after having fought his way from Salerno to Rome and 180 miles north of Rome in the Italian campaign. Um, but my father never talked to me about his own exploits, but he loved to talk to me about the Army. In fact, sometimes I think I was raised on a military base. And, um, but I got to learn to love what he spoke to me about. And um, anyway, coming here, I kept thinking about him the whole time. And uh, what would you think, Dad, of me speaking to the... Uh, to the, uh, the, the military here at Carlisle Barracks, um, I think he'd be rather happy. And so 
uh, anyway, thank you very much for the, for the kind invitation. Well, you know, um, I think we can all admit that um, great achievement as an operational commander of an army is really um, a product of having gone through extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult hardship and, um, and challenges. And a general who emerges as someone of note has had to deal with extraordinarily difficult times. And so George Meade comes to me as a poster child for that idea. I don't know of any general who upon accepting command, and he really didn't even, wasn't even asked to accept, upon being ordered to command the Army of the Potomac, uh, saw so much difficulty, so much hardship, that um, again, he is virtually a poster child for that idea. Well, you know, George Meade um, was, in fact, ordered to take command of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, he was at Frederick, Maryland. The Army rested there in command of General Joseph Hooker. And Hooker resigned uh, his position as commander of the Army of the Potomac. And uh, instead of going and asking George Meade if he would like to come to the White House and discuss this, like they did with John Reynolds not too many days before, uh, only to be turned down because John Reynolds didn't want to take over command and take care of the leavings of Burnside and Hooker. Quote. Um, so what they did, what uh, the president and the Secretary of War did was just simply send out orders to George Meade to take command. And um, <clears throat> bringing those orders to George Meade was a Colonel James A. Hardy. Colonel Hardy um, uh, took a train, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, out of, out of Washington uh, to, uh, to Frederick, and then uh, was given enough money to get to uh, uh, George Meade's headquarters, which was located along the B&O Railroad tracks, just southwest of Frederick. And uh, as he got out and went in and asked, where is General Meade's headquarters? And Meade, at the time, was the commander of the Fifth Corps, a major general, but commanding the Fifth Corps. They escorted him to Meade's headquarters, and Hardy gets inside Meade's tent and starts shaking him, Meade's asleep, and saying, General, General, I have some news for you. And Meade's response was, am I under arrest? Well, it's great. I mean, that's the relationship between the high command in these armies, Union armies, and the Lincoln administration. It had gotten that bad. And Hardy responded to him saying, no, uh, I'm here to tell you, you are the commander now of the Army of the Potomac. Now, Meade didn't respond by saying, well, that's worse than the other. Um, <laughs> but he probably felt it. He undoubtedly felt it. This army he's to take command of has not won an engagement against its enemy 
in 21 months. Think of that. So bad has it been that uh, no one wants to volunteer to serve in these armies, including the Army of the Potomac in particular. And uh, why would they? You know, you look at the uh, New York Times of 1862 and 63, and what you see on the front page are casualty lists from soldiers in New York. And you have these casualties upon casualties, and yet no victory. And so no one wants to volunteer. And so in March, the Lincoln administration and Congress have instituted a draft that will start in July. Well, now the fear is there are going to be riots because of the draft. So this is the shape the Union effort is in at the time Meade takes command of the Army of the Potomac. Well, you know, um, when Meade took command of this army, um, he immediately saw that um, this army is in bad shape. I found in my work on this book that more than half of the soldiers in the Army of the Potomac at the time Meade took command were shoeless. Now, I got that because the first three orders Meade signs are uh, requisitions he signs to the quartermaster general were for shoes. And in all, Meade by July 1 would order from the quartermaster general 51,000 pair of shoes. There were 91,000 troops, officers, and men in the Army of the Potomac. And he's ordering 51,000 pair of shoes and socks, by the way. Well, beyond the men who are in difficult shape are the horses and mules. These armies are driven by horses and mules. And um, there are 60,000 horses in the Army of the Potomac. And there are 30 to 40,000 mules in the Army of the Potomac. And you go, well, Kent, I mean, yeah, that's interesting, but so what? Well, a horse has to be fed according to Army, Army regulations. Um, oats and hay. He's required under those regulations to get 14 pounds of oats and 14 pounds of hay a day. That's a horse. A mule is required to have uh, at least 14 pounds of mixed grains. They don't like oats. Of mixed grains and 14 pounds of hay a day. Now you've got to do this for 60,000 horses and nearly 40,000 mules. Well, they haven't been able to. 
So many of your horses and mules are weak. Now they'll be weak, and if you don't feed them, and by the way, this is every day, you've got to feed them. And um, if you don't get something in them to sustain them, they'll just collapse. They'll fall over. And that will end that horse or mule. So the army is on the brink of not being able to move. You know, as the saying goes, you can't fight them unless you can feed them. And so here's an army that is in trouble. And um, Meade has to, that's, these are his things he has got to pay attention to. However, and he's already ordered, he's ordered more supplies. Uh, in fact, Joe Hooker ordered some supplies and there was a 125 wagon train heading toward Frederick from Baltimore filled with quartermaster stores. This is exactly what's needed. It arrives just outside of Frederick on the 28th of June, the same day George Meade is named commander of the Army of the Potomac. And what happens? Jeb Stuart, with three brigades of cavalry and a battery of artillery, cross the Potomac River at Seneca Falls and attack that train. That, that attack resulted in the entire train literally being seized by the enemy. And um, they drove those trains on ahead. Jeb Stuart did all the supplies in them to be used by the Confederate Army. And George Meade has suffered the first, the first of what will be many setbacks uh, in his command of the Army of the Potomac. Well, you know, um, uh, so besides Jeb Stewart taking this 125 wagon train, he also cut all the telegraph wires, and then he destroyed two bridges on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. So George Meade's army now has no communication by telegraph with its government, and it is unable to get supplies into Frederick uh, by way of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. So um, imagine, imagine though, George Meade, having just accepted command, just been named commander, really didn't want that command as he kept telling his wife, um, but nevertheless is commander. And this is the hardship that's thrown at him. Can't get any supplies in, can't telegraph your government, can't do anything, and all the supplies that were due in here are gone. And you still have an army that's half its Troops are, are shoeless, and its horses and mules still have no fodder or food or shoes themselves. Um, and that's where he is when he begins command. Well, Meade um, decides he's going to move the army 
north on the very next day, June 29. And uh, looking at maps, he, uh, he's, and, and receiving intelligence from uh, various uh, 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 origins, not only his roving cavalry that are far uh, west of the Army of the Potomac and north of the, Potom of the Army of the Potomac, but also civilians uh, who are reporting of things they have seen. Many of these are coming in on, in wagons or in stages uh, from the west, and they have seen what's going on in the, in the valley where Chambersburg is located. And they report that uh, James Longstreet's corps is at Chambersburg. They report that um, Ambrose Powell Hill's corps of Lee's army is at Cashtown. And some elements of it have been moving from Cashtown toward Gettysburg. And he learns that Dick Ewell's corps is north of Gettysburg some approaching Carlisle, and, um, uh, but generally they are north of Gettysburg, and some elements of Dick Ewell's Corps are east uh, near York, Pennsylvania, and moving west. As Meade looks at his maps, and by the way, folks, George Meade has no topographical map at his disposal. This always comes as a shock for people, but there were no topographical maps available for him or for anyone. Um, the reason is there were topographical maps made of this area. However, uh, none of them had been reproduced in all this time. Um, sounds like government work. Um, uh, and and uh, so, so has no, and you ask, well, how do you know he didn't have topographical maps? Well, you know, the first order Meade gave for June 29 was to advance north. And um, he, uh, he gives explicit instructions to each Corps commander as to where he wants them to move. And to General Reynolds, commands the First Corps, and to General Oliver Otis Howard, who commands the 11th Corps, he gives instructions for them to move north. And at the, quote, Wentz's place, Howard is to move to the right, and Reynolds is to move to the left. The road forks, and it forks at the Wentz's place. How do I know that? How did he know that? Those are called, those are regimental, uh, not regimental, they are uh, uh, maps made for residents. They're residential maps. And these were made commercially. People would come by, go knock on your door and say, how would you like to be on the map? We'll put your name on the map. And they give them a couple of bucks and go on and they get their name on there, along with where their house is located. And so when I saw that in Meade's first order of June 29, I said, he's using a residential map. The topographical maps don't show residences, but the residential maps 
are designed to show uh, residences. So Meade's got residential maps. And so we, uh, using those is what he, how he orders his army forward. And um, the, uh, the, the, Meade, Meade has come to a conclusion, having looked at these maps, seen uh, in Carroll County, Maryland, there's a Carroll County residential map as well. Looking at those maps, Meade sees that in Carroll County, which is the county just north of Frederick County, and just south of Adams County, Pennsylvania, that in that county, there is a stream that runs through it called Pipe Creek. And his object is to move the army as close to that site of Pipe Creek as possible. Because he wants to see whether or not there is a, um, a, 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 a need or uh, an opportunity, rather, to defend a position along Pipe Creek. Meade himself uh, moves his headquarters to um, uh, a site just along the south bank of Pipe Creek. And the first thing Meade does is get out and look at this, at Pipe Creek. And he determines that this could be a seriously good site for the enemy, for, for his army to, to hold if it wishes, to, if, if the enemy would approach it and attack him there. And so um, uh, all, the, all his different army corps are spread out along fundamentally Pipe Creek. If you would turn to the first map, <laughs> okay. There it is. There it is. I'll go to first to you, you folks. You can see Pipe Creek running from Manchester to Union Mills, to just below Tannytown, Middleburg. Middleburg is where George Meade's headquarters would be. And then it moves on into the Monocacy River. You all see that? And folks, for you, <laughs> you can see Pipe Creek beginning at Manchester to Union Mills, Tannytown, Middleburg. And Middleburg is where Meade's headquarters is located and it ultimately empties into the Monocacy River. Pipe Creek from, Man from Manchester uh, west, uh, its bluffs on the south bank go from 50 feet above the water all the way down to five and 10 feet above the water as you move west. So, I mean, it is a highly defensible position. And um, Meade wants all of his corps to move up to that position. And that is what they do on the 29th of, um, of June. On the 30th of June, Meade issues his first 
orders. Now again, he has been given intelligence of Confederate movements um, from um, uh, York, Pennsylvania, all the way to movements out of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And there is a road that connects uh, Chambersburg with York. It is the Chambersburg Pike. We're all familiar with that. It runs right through Gettysburg and heads on to York, and it originates at Chambersburg. And Meade sees that, that, uh, um, that road, and, and it is kind of like a turnpike axis. All the Confederate activity seems to be on that turnpike or north of that turnpike. And so what Meade does is he determines that he can advance elements of his army forward, away from ahead of Pipe Creek, and the purpose of this would be, one, to serve as a mask for what he really wants to do, and that is defend Pipe Creek, but it also serves another purpose. With the Confederate Army, elements of the Confederate Army spread out from York to just south of Carlisle, to all the way to Chambersburg and to Cashtown, uh, what does Meade need to do? He needs to find some way that he can cause that enemy to collect its elements. He doesn't want to strike any element of it and have another element strike him. What he wants is to see if he can get the enemy to collect its troops into one or two spots, and then he can determine whether or not he can take that on. That's a... Uh, to, to do that, you do what um, uh, military theorists throughout the 19th century have always recommended, and that is uh, to use what, what they call an advance core to move ahead and get on the roads and routes of communication of the enemy and force the enemy to start to collect in front of that advance force. And probably no greater adherent to that, that idea uh, lived then quite like Dennis Hart Mahan. He was the professor of military science at West Point for George Meade and for every one of his corps commanders, <laughs> except Dan Sickles, of course. Um, uh, Dennis Hart Mahan was the one who taught every one of them. He also taught every one of Lee's. And Lee was superintendent at West Point when Dennis Hart Mahan was a professor there. But here is what Dennis Hart Mahan says about an operation like this. He says, uh, when an enemy's position is to be reconnoitered with a view to show his hand, the purpose is to get the enemy to show his hand by causing him to call out all of his troops. Then a large detachment of all arms, adequate to the task of pressing the enemy vigorously and also of withdrawing with safety 
when pressed in turn, must be thrown forward. You all get that? The purpose is to uh, uh, bring, bring, a, bring a force forward uh, that's large enough to force the enemy to react. And then if the enemy reacts by attacking you, to have enough strength to resist it. Okay, does that make sense? And um, those uh, Dennis Mahans, I mean, this is literally right out of Karl von Clausewitz, who wrote about uh, his, his great text on war, uh, wrote of the same thing. And in fact, Dennis Mahan's book he wrote, he wrote a book about this, uh, is called The Outpost. And to Karl von Clausewitz, his title of what he wrote about was the operational use of an advanced corps and outpost. So you can see exactly where Dennis Mahan gets his title. Um, Mahan studied uh, military science in Europe for four years. And he was fluent in both German and French. So uh, Antoine de Jomini, his text, uh, has the same thing in it as, as, as Karl von Clausewitz. Uh, who, who knows? I mean, he may even had an audience with both of these guys. We don't know, but he studied over there. And he is the one who, who with this text, The Outpost, um, has instilled this concept in all the commanders on both armies uh, in the Gettysburg campaign. Um, not, not too long ago, I saw a, um, uh, an ad from a, a relic dealer in Gettysburg. And it was a copy of The Outpost published in New Orleans in 1861. And he opened up the book and it had a signature in it. And it was Brigadier General James J. Archer who of course was a brigade commander in Harry Heath's division, uh, one who opened the Battle of Gettysburg, um, but he had a copy of Dennis Mahan's outpost in his, uh, in his possession at the time. Well, you know, uh, did Meade actually give John Reynolds or any of his other subordinates explicit instructions as to what they were to do if he advanced them north. And the first, first order Meade gave uh, was to John Reynolds. And that was to move, he was at Marsh Creek, just north of Emmitsburg. He, um, he was ordered to move to Gettysburg but Meade uh, gave him no other instructions other than that. Except I found a letter in the National Archives when I was working on this book. And um, this is, uh, uh, it was, uh, I was in the 11th Corps papers. And um, uh, the, the, 
I, I kept pulling out of this, these, these archival boxes, different things, some, and some in envelopes, some not. But one envelope I pulled out said on the front, contents taken from the pockets of Major General John F. Reynolds, July 1, 1863. Now I opened it up, and these were all the dispatches he had received that morning from signal stations overlooking Fairfield, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, he was concerned about that avenue being at Fairfield being, being uh, occupied by enemy troops. Turns out they were not. Uh, probably gave him the impetus to go ahead and move on ahead. Um, but um, uh, uh, the, this, these, these, it, it, and there were other, other papers similar to that in this, in this package. But then there was this one letter, and this letter was from George Meade, and it is entirely in George Meade's handwriting. Now, when have you seen an operational commander sit down and write out his own, own orders? Now, Meade and Reynolds are very close. They're very good friends. And um, uh, so it's not beyond the realm of of being different that, that George Meade would sit down and write John Reynolds a letter. And it's my dear general, is the way it begins. And it ends yours truly. But here is what George Meade says. In case of an advance in force, uh, either against, he's already ordered them to Gettysburg now. In case of an advance in, in force against you at Gettysburg or Howard at Emmitsburg, you must fall back to that place. And I will reinforce you from the core nearest you, which are Sickles, Corps uh, at Tannytown and Slocum's then at Littlestown. So he tells him to advance, but then tells him if he is a, if the enemy appears in force against him, he's to withdraw. Now, I don't know how many of you have read texts on the Battle of Gettysburg by some just tremendous people. Edward Coddington uh, is among them. Stephen Sears is, an, is another one. Uh, all of them seem to intimate that Reynolds was sent forward uh, and that if he determined to open an engagement at Gettysburg, he was authorized to do so. Do you hear that in this letter? Absolutely not. Meade tells him exactly what he wants done. And that is if the enemy appears in force against you, you are to withdraw back to that place, which is Emmitsburg. So um, then Meade, at the end of that letter, says this. Please get all the information you can and post yourself up on their roads and routes of communication. What's their road and route of communication? It's the Chambersburg Pike. 
if the first core occupied the Chambersburg Pike, do you think the elements of Lee's army west and east of Gettysburg would respond to that? They'd move toward that. And of course, that's exactly what George Meade wanted. But if the minute they move and then start showing a hostile attitude toward, toward John Reynolds' core, then Reynolds is supposed to withdraw. Does that make sense to everybody? Those were the orders. Those were Meade's orders. So there was no latitude given to, um, to uh, John Reynolds. But go take this one step further. Meade also orders other elements of the Army of the Potomac forward, just like he did John Reynolds. What makes John Reynolds' movement so critical is that it seems as though most of the enemy forces are moving toward Gettysburg from the west. And indeed they are. You've got an entire core of James Longstreet's in the Cumberland Valley, and you also have A.P. Hill's Corps advancing from, from Cashtown toward Gettysburg. So Meade believed that's where, the, that's where we're probably gonna see the trouble first. And why he spent so much time making sure John Reynolds knew exactly what was expected of him. Um, but Meade also sent orders to other Corps commanders to General Sykes, commanding the Fifth Corps. He ordered him to move north to Hanover. To uh, General um, Sedgwick, he gave him orders to move to Manchester, the beginning of Pipe Creek. He also um, ordered uh, um, uh, 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 General Slocum and his 12th Corps to move to Littlestown, just east of Gettysburg. And on the morning of July 1, he sent explicit orders to each one of those advanced corps, to Slocum's, uh, to uh, Sykes's, to, to uh, Sedgwick's, giving them explicit instructions as to exactly where he wanted them to fall back to if they were attacked. This was called the Pipe Creek Circular. So can you uh, get a glimpse now of what Meade had in mind in this? Well, folks, um, as brilliant as all that sounds, John Reynolds moves forward. He moves forward and he gets just south of Gettysburg on the Emmitsburg Road when he receives couriers from John Buford, whose uh, cavalry uh, brigade is uh, operating west of Gettysburg and has gotten itself into a fight out there. Now, I've often asked myself, you know, why was John Buford in a fight at all? I, I have no answer for that other than he was. And um, his last orders from General Pleasanton, the commander of cavalry in the Army of the Potomac, was to scout the enemy 
and report back to me and Army headquarters. And here he is, locked in combat. And he's not faring very well. He's sending uh, couriers back toward um, the Emmitsburg Road, uh, finding that, or hearing that uh, John Reynolds is moving his first corps up the Emmitsburg Road, asking him for help. And John Reynolds agrees to help John Buford. And so he moves the First Corps off of the Emmitsburg Road uh, and then um, through the, uh, the Lutheran Seminary and appears on the, uh, the, the, the land uh, west of the seminary, uh, deploys elements of the First Corps and uh, engages the enemy. By 10.45 in the morning, John Reynolds is dead. He has, before his fatal wound, um, he has ordered the 11th Corps, as well as the 3rd Corps, forward. And Oliver Otis Howard has brought the 11th Corps forward, and he deploys north of Gettysburg. And um, the fighting rages west of Gettysburg uh, until, folks, to make this short, both the 1st Corps and the 11th Corps are routed. And their refugees flee through the town, occupy the heights uh, east uh, of Gettysburg and uh, somewhat south of Gettysburg, Cemetery Hill, Culp's Hill, some parts of Cemetery Ridge. Um, and I mean, it turns, it's a disaster. And um, if it began as a difficult thing for George Meade uh, when he was first named, uh, look what it's turned into. I mean, he was, he was denied all his quartermaster stores by Jeb Stuart. He was denied all his telegraph wires and all the, uh, the use of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad by that operation of Jeb Stuart's. And now here he is after having planned this thing. Um, John Reynolds is dead. His corps is routed. Uh, Oliver Otis Howard is still in the saddle, but he has been routed as well. And they're both up on this place called Cemetery Hill in Culp's Hill. And now what does he do? What does George Meade do? Uh, well, he calls uh, on his chief engineer um, and asks him uh, to go to Gettysburg and just tell me, see what the situation's like. And um, so... Uh, so, and then report back to me. And then he asked General uh, Hancock if he would go to Gettysburg and do the same thing and report back to me. Is that place defensible? What? Meade has no map of Gettysburg. He's never been to Gettysburg. As he said to uh, individuals who asked him after the war, were you ever at Gettysburg before? He says, no, I never knew anything about the place. And so he, he sends elements of his staff forward to report back to him whether or not the place is defensible. Now, in the meantime, John, uh, uh, General Meade has done one other thing while all this is going on. He has, along with his chief quartermaster, uh, set up a uh, requisitions for General Montgomery Miggs 
the quartermaster general of the army, to help him make Westminster, Maryland, his base of supply. Now, he wants, again, to defend Pipe Creek. Westminster is only seven miles behind the Pipe Creek line. And Westminster also is the terminus of the Western Maryland Railroad, which is a single track from Baltimore to Westminster. Uh, there are no telegraph wires on that. It, it, it's a brand new railroad. No telegraph wires, but, I mean, you can get a, a freight trains from Baltimore to Westminster. And he has since asked the quartermaster general to name Herman Hout as the head of that uh, force in Westminster to uh, develop a, uh, the supply base for the Army of the Potomac. And um, as every one of his corps are ordered to Gettysburg, and they will be pretty soon, Meade still requires them, as he, as he would anywhere, to send all of their quartermaster stores of each corps, what beef cattle they have, what horses, everything else, to Westminster, which is the supply base. If he does, if he does not do that, they're all in danger of being seized by the enemy. So all of the supplies go to Westminster. But now Meade is going to have to move to Gettysburg. Meade moves the army to Gettysburg. Now Westminster's 22 miles behind the Army of the Potomac. Can you see? I mean, is, there, is he a poster child for difficulty? I mean, really. Have you ever seen so much thrown at one man? I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, but this is his story. Um, Meade now has to find a way, in order to keep his horses alive, to get the fodder and the hay somehow from Westminster to Gettysburg. Uh, however, what's going to happen is that um, Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill are going to come under attack. And this is Dick Ewell. And he will assault Culp's Hill, assault Cemetery Hill on, on the night of July 1 and then again on July 2nd. And what does that do? It forces me to have to suspend everything coming up and down the Baltimore Pike from Gettysburg to Westminster which means that all the supplies now that the, this poor army desperately needs uh, can't be moved to Gettysburg so long as it's, those two sites are under attack. So you never thought that Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill would have such a, such a, a, a meaning to the Army of the Potomac. Uh, it's always, well, did the Confederates take it? And if they didn't, it's a failure. If they, you know, what have you. No. The effect of the attacks was to literally halt supplies coming to the Army of the Potomac. So uh, Herman Haupt has promised that if you could keep that road open, I can move five freight trains a day from Baltimore to Westminster. 
and I can unload 2,000 tons of supplies for the army with each, each day, which of course, this is everything he needs, everything George Meade needs, but he can't keep it open for fear of it being attacked. Well, Meade orders all of his Army Corps to Gettysburg. You turn the next uh, map, you can see um, Yeah, move, move it to the next one. Nope, yeah. Uh, there's, I think we're skipping one. No, go forward, go the other way. Oh, no, I don't know if it did it make it on. No. <laughs> okay, okay, go back, go back, okay. There's, there's Westminster. Now, I'll show this to you all on the other side. There's Westminster. And uh, uh, the, uh, the Baltimore Pike um, uh, runs up to Gettysburg. You can see it right here. Uh, Meade orders General Sedgwick, who's at Manchester, forward to, uh, to, to Gettysburg. He orders all of these elements of his army, all the remaining corps, toward Gettysburg. And um, as they arrive, um, Meade is asking for information from them as to whether or not uh, they believe this place is, is defensible. All of them believe that it is. You take a look at, uh, there's Manchester, there's Westminster, and you can see the Baltimore Pike between Westminster and and Gettysburg, and these 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 elements of the, of, of 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 Meade's army are are advancing from Manchester to Gettysburg, from uh, Hanover to Gettysburg, um, all of them moving at the same time. And um, again, when they arrive, they arrive and there's still nothing to eat, and their horses haven't been fed. Um, it's uh, difficult in the extreme. But there is, he, Meade's, Meade's response here is frankly the only response on the table that he could exercise in this. And um, his other orders from the White House are to make sure that the enemy is, that you, you keep the enemy away from Baltimore and Washington. And so Meade believes that by advancing up there, he will uh, put a, uh, put, be put in a position where he can stop the enemy from doing that. Whether or not he can do anything more uh, remains to be seen. So um, Meade, uh, interestingly, <laughs> arrived at Gettysburg around 2.30 in the morning of, uh, of July 2nd. And he was escorted out to uh, Culp's Hill, uh, Cemetery Hill. He helped uh, order the placement of troops along those positions. And then he uh, rode down Cemetery Ridge 
and investigated the positions there. And um, it's interesting, it was recorded by more than one observer that Meade said kind of under his breath, I don't think this is really the place. And he said that because of the, the position of the Army of the Potomac's left flank, which would be uh, on Cemetery Ridge, uh, that it could be turned by an enemy attack. The enemy could get on the far left flank and roll it up. It was Meade's great fear in this. Well, as it turns out, on the 2nd of July, though rather later in the day than uh, one would have thought, uh, Lee launches attacks against Meade's left flank. This is James Longstreet, two divisions of Longstreet's corps um, are thrown at, um, at Meade, but before, Meade, before Lee even moves, before Lee even moves, Meade calls a council of war at the Leicester House. And at that uh, council of war, he wants to get from his corps commanders uh, what their thoughts are uh, about staying at Gettysburg. Um, he had previously set up defense lines along Cemetery Ridge and even had his topographical engineers draw maps showing where each of the corps were supposed to be on Cemetery Ridge. All the way down from Cemetery Hill to the second corps, the third corps would be on the far left. And he had made maps of where the 12th corps and elements of the 11th corps and 1st corps would be situated. Uh, and then had those maps distributed to each of the corps commanders. And um, Meade calls this council of war. Everybody knows where they're supposed to be. Everybody has a map showing where everybody else is. Uh, there's only one person who is not in attendance. And that's General Sickles. And, uh, and where is Sickles? Well, General uh, Governor Kemble Warren, his Meade's chief engineer, uh, shows up at the council and informs the council that Dan Sickles is moving the Third Corps out to the Emmitsburg Road. Now, I'll tell you, um, given all the things Meade has had to deal with up to this point in time, how do you think he received that? You know, uh, he was a, was a Google-eyed old snapping turtle is what people, his soldiers called him. Can you imagine? Well, here, here's what happened. Meade asked Warren, are you, are you serious? Warren says, yes, you can look out the front door and see. In other words, Sickles decided just not to attend. 
and he was going to do what he damn pleased. Now, once he gets out to the Emmitsburg Road, okay, he says he's got high ground. Big deal. As General John Gibbon pointed out after the war in a, in a, in a, in a text he wrote for a magazine, was that the problem with Sickles moving out there is that all the artillery batteries from the reserve artillery that were lined up on Cemetery Ridge were now worthless. They couldn't fire without hitting their own men. So no matter what Sickles thinks about the high ground out there, <laughs> um, he, has, he has caused one of the most serious elements of his army to simply not be able to do anything and that's the artillery reserve. All of those guns went silent during the fighting. And of course, uh, Meade uh, excuses himself from the conference, gets on old Baldy, his horse, and rides with a couple of his staff officers out to the Emmitsburg Road. And he uh, stops Sickles and asks him, where the hell you think you're going? And Reynolds, uh, uh, Sickles tries to tell him that, oh, I, you know, I thought this would be the best place for my corps to be. And uh, Meade read him the riot act. And one of his aides said, I've seen Meade mad before, but I have never seen him as mad as he was then. Anyway, uh, Sickles then turns to Meade and says, well, then I'll call them back. And just as he says, I'll call them back, Confederate artillery opens up. And Meade said, no, you can't fall back. You can't fall back. Dagon, I'll have to support you. I will support you. You stay right where you are. Otherwise, you'll be routed falling back. Stay right where you are, and I'll bring up everything I can find. Now, I'll tell you, uh, that tells me a lot about the generalship of this guy. I mean, he saw just, this was born in nothing but disobedience of orders. Total. And yet, the survival of those guys out there, those, that's, those troops were more meaningful than anything at, the, at this hour. And he said, no, you stay right where you are. I'll bring up everything I can get. And this becomes the story of George Meade on July 2nd. George Meade actually brings up troops himself uh, and situates himself on the Wheatfield Road, just below Little Round Top and behind Devil's Den, situates himself there with his staff, and he calls forward all of the Fifth Corps, brigade by brigade. And he's the one who actually directs them into combat after first taking strong Vincent's brigade and sending them to the summit of Little Roundtop. So if you all love the story of, 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 of Joshua Reynolds and, and uh, 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 all that in the, uh, in, the, in the story of the defense of Little Roundtop, um, it's George Meade who sends them up there. And then he sends each brigade that comes into him from Sykes's Fifth Corps and, and directs them into combat in the wheat field. 
and Meade is on the wheat field road. Now, you see, you show, you speak of leadership. You speak of he showing himself to his men as one who's going to take as much flack coming in as they are and directing them into combat. Um, this is a, almost a textbook of how it's done. And of course, ultimately, the attacks of Longstreet's Corps against the peach orchard, the wheat field, were stunted just by this. One brigade after another, after another, after another were thrown in to block that attack. And it worked. Meade then had to pay attention to what was happening farther up Cemetery Ridge because there were elements of A.P. Hill's Corps that were now preparing to assault those positions. And Meade sat on his horse behind those lines the entire time those attacks were being received on Cemetery Ridge to the point where at one, at one moment he was in the angle right behind Alonzo Cushing's 4th United States Artillery. And while there, a bullet went through his right pant leg, tearing his flesh slightly, <coughs> but not embedding in his arm, in his leg. But that bullet then went through the, through the saddle and into the stomach of Meade's horse. And Meade saw he tried to move the horse forward and the horse stumbled. He says, I've never seen old Baldy do what he just did. And yet, old Baldy survived all that. It was interesting, in his letters to his wife, Margareta, Meade talked more about the plight of poor old Baldy than he did anything. And until he finally got, got back to Frederick, and he says, Margareta, I think old Baldy's going to make it. Well, you know, old Baldy wound up, uh, Meade died in 1872, and old Baldy was in the funeral procession. So he made it. He made it all right. But so can you, I mean, you can, you can envision this guy. I mean, he's actually directing the traffic out on those battlefields himself. Well, <clears throat> at a council of war the night of July 2nd, Meade, um, Meade spoke with all of his corps commanders, got casualty reports, got information as to their situation, their condition, and um, um, uh, sized up where this army was for the ensuing day. And um, uh, as the uh, Council of War ended, uh, John Gibbon recalled going up to George Meade and uh, telling him, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? He says, um, the enemy's going to assault our center. And Gibbon asked him, <coughs> why do you think that's so? Meade said, it's simple. They've attacked my right, which is Culp's Hill, Cemetery Hill. They've been attacking the entire time. And they've attacked my left. And uh, <laughs> thus far, they've been defeated. 
And he said, um, they'll go after my center. Mark my word, they'll go after my center. So um, he brought up everything he could bring to the center of that line. And of course, that is exactly where, on the afternoon of July 3rd, Pickett's division, along with divisions out of AP Hill's Corps, tried to strike uh, Meade's army and were hurled back. And um, um, Meade now, um, as Lee begins to withdraw from Gettysburg on the 4th of July, a very rainy, nasty 4th of July, uh, Meade is left holding the battlefield and is the victor of Gettysburg. But look what he went through. I don't know if I've ever seen a commander face so many hardships, so many difficulties, as George Meade did. And yet he, he, uh, he got through them. Uh, he fundamentally defeated the enemy. And um, um, his effort now was to pursue this enemy. And this is where um, uh, it becomes difficult. Meade's horses and mules, again, have never received anything. Usually after three days, they can't stand up. Now are they gonna pursue this enemy? And um, I mean, he's, uh, he's got supply trains that are 55 miles, 57 miles in length. Don't have any supplies in them much, but they're drawn by 36,000 horses and mules. How are the, how's that gonna happen when they haven't been fed? Well, people have scorned George Meade because he was dilatory in pursuing Lee. How many people have heard that? Uh, pursue Lee with what? Pursue him with what? Um, <clears throat> don't you think the first thing you ought to do is try to feed these poor beasts? Well, as Lee began to withdraw, supplies started to move. And the supplies came in, and I found this in correspondence out of the 11th Corps papers. It seems all the supplies coming in first were for fodder for the animals and for shoes for the animals. That's steel, coal, forges to make the shoes. Uh, that's what was coming in first. A soldier, I mean, he can go without food for 10 days. Now he's not worth a whole lot, uh, but he can. Um, you can also talk with the soldier and tell him the problem, but a horse or a mule, you can't. So all the supplies coming in were going directly to the animals and they were trying to feed them as rapidly as they could and as thoroughly as they could. And uh, <clears throat> so the entire July 4, all of July 5 were sent feeding animals and feeding the troops. And then Meade determines that he is going to use this army to try to pursue the enemy. 
Now, does he go right into the rear of Lee's army as it's crossing the South Mountain Range? No. In fact, he writes to two commanders of elements of the uh, Department of the Susquehanna in Harrisburg and tells them uh, in two different letters that I have determined to follow a parallel route and meet the enemy down by the Potomac. And so when, Lee, when, when Meade calls a council of his commanders and asks them, as he always likes to do, what do you think we ought to do? Hancock says, I think we ought to file, we ought to pursue a parallel route. And he gets information from, he never lets them know he's already come to this conclusion. This is a, this is a Meade trait, by the way. And so all of them ultimately agree they should follow a parallel route. Go down on the east face of the South Mountain and Catoctin Range, and then go across Turner Pass and meet the enemy down on the Potomac River that way. And that is exactly what Meade intends to do, and it is exact, exactly on the 6th of July what he orders his army to do. And they follow, let me make a, one, more, one more map here, if we could. <clears throat> is there, go, go back, see if there's, okay, that's the one, there you are, there you are. You can see from Gettysburg, you can see all the different parallel routes Meade has for each one of his corps, so as not to cause unnecessary congestion anywhere, not to slow down anyone, everyone move along a, a route that's assigned just to them. And Meade manages by the 12th of July to cross over the mountains using Turner Pass west of Frederick, and he confronts that enemy. But let me tell you <clears throat> the price paid for doing that. As I told you, he has horses and mules that simply haven't been fed. And um, I found in the uh, archives, National Archives, a report issued by the Deputy Quartermaster General of the Army to the Quartermaster General, Montgomery Meigs, detailing what happened in the Gettysburg campaign to the horses um, in the Army of the Potomac. And I found that um, there were a total of 14,000 horses lost in this campaign, 14,000. And that 1,900 of them, of that 14, were killed during the fighting, which means that 12,000 horses were lost pursuing the enemy. That's how bad it was. And yet Meade gets to a position where he has confronted the enemy. And down there I found a diary written by a soldier in the uh, 39th Pennsylvania. 
And he writes uh, in there that um, the men are hungry and tired. The horses are blue. Hundreds die every day. That's what happens when horses and mules aren't fed. And so he's now got an army that has almost nothing left to pull it. And yet, um, it's reported to Lincoln that uh, Lee on the 13th of July escaped across the Potomac River. That was after his engineers in 68 hours built two pontoon bridges across the Potomac that allowed that army to escape. And uh, the president remarked, Meade had only to stretch out his hands and they were ours. And then he also said that a golden opportunity of destroying Lee's army was squandered. Well, you know, <clears throat> that didn't help poor George Meade's reputation. In fact, so much of the uh, commentary on George Meade since then has been predicated on those kind of comments coming from the White House. And uh, to the point where no one ever wanted to contest it. I mean, Lincoln was the uh, martyred president by the war's end. And who's going to, uh, to question him? But you know, there were those who did question that. And one of them was General Henry Hunt. And um, Henry Hunt seemed like a, uh, uh, an interesting choice to question that because he didn't get along with George Meade. And he often said so publicly that I didn't get along with him. But I admired him. And let me read to you what Henry Hunt wrote. This is in the last page of my book. But I, I love to quote Henry Hunt here. He said, um, <clears throat> now I was uh, by no means uh, a favorite with Meade. <laughs> uh, he rarely consulted me as the chief of artillery is consulted. Uh, he consulted uh, the chief of engineers or of his staff, but not me. So I'm under no sort of obligation to him that would lead me to sustain him if wrong nor have I any occasion for ill feeling or malice toward him. I.e., there was no close personal relations between us such as there was with Humphreys or Gibbon and yourself. And he's, uh, he's writing here to the chief of, the engin chief of engineers um, uh, that, that could or would in any respect sway my judgment. We differed on some points, Sometimes I was vexed. Once I demanded to be relieved. And so I could be impartial, I think. Now Webb, he's writing to Alexander Stuart Webb, 
the commander of the Philadelphia Brigade at Gettysburg. Now, Webb, as I've studied this battle because I've written about it and had to study it, Meade has grown and grown upon me. Now, again, this is a guy who didn't get along with George Meade. Meade was suddenly placed in command. From that moment, all his acts and intentions, as far as I could judge them, were just what they ought to have been. Except perhaps his order to attack at Falling Waters on the morning of the 13th, and especially on the 14th of July, when his corps commanders reported against it. And I was then in favor of the attack, so I can't blame him. He was right in his orders as to Pipe Creek, right in his determination under certain circumstances to fall back to it, right in pushing up to Gettysburg after the battle commenced, right in remaining there, right in making his battle a purely defensive one, right, therefore, in taking the line he did, right in not attempting to counterattack at any stage of the battle, right as to his pursuit of Lee, rarely has more skill, vigor, or wisdom been shown under such circumstances as he was placed in, and I would, I think, belittle his grand record of that campaign by a formal defense against his detractors who will surely go under as this show's story will. Why Lincoln and his confidence never saw Meade's achievement in the Gettysburg campaign as Hunt and his other professional soldiers did was because in Hunt's words, the hopes and expectations of Lincoln and others excited by the victory at Gettysburg were as unreasonable as the fears that had preceded it. Thank you all very much. <laughs> so folks, we're gonna have time for about uh, 15 to 20 minutes worth of questions. Uh, as I said at the beginning of my program, uh, raise your hand, uh, we'll call on you. Uh, we'll Tim in the back there with the microphone, wait for him to come to you. Uh, and that way uh, our online audience will also be able to hear as well as everyone in here. So uh, just, uh, we'll go ahead. I think I saw this gentleman in the green back. We'll start with him. I wonder if you could speak for just a minute or two about Meade's selection of chief of staff. Um, you mean of General Butterfield? <laughs> um, I don't know if I have really an explanation for, uh, to, uh, as a response to that. Um, uh, Meade chose people who um, had been in that service before, uh, were, were used to operating at that level, and um, I think he chose those people accordingly. And I think that's the best one can say. You can't pull a man out of any position in an army and expect him to serve in that capacity. And um, it is important for simple continuity 
and for an army to move without any sort of uh, hiccups uh, if you have people who have experience at it. And so I think that probably would best explain his decision making. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I know this is probably beyond uh, or outside the scope of tonight's talk and perhaps your book, but I'm sure given the study you've made of need, you'll have an opinion on this. I have always thought that in addition to the pursuit of Lee, one of the things that Meade uh, was unfairly criticized for was his uh, decision to call off, excuse me, call off the assault at Mine Run mm -hmm. uh, later in 1863. Mm -hmm. And I think that may have been the final straw in having Lincoln bring Grant east. But have you studied Mine Run and do you agree that Meade is unfairly criticized for his actions there? I would, <clears throat> I, I, I must confess, I really have not um, made it a point of examining Mine Run. Um, I can tell you though that um, from what I know about George Meade having worked on him in some depth uh, recently with respect to this campaign, that uh, I would not question his judgment. Anyone else? Yes, yes. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, on the night of the 30th, Reynolds and Howard meet in concert at mm -hmm. Marsh Creek. Mm -hmm. Reynolds at that time is a left wing commander. Right. And Doubleday is the first corps commander. Right. Do you have any information on what information was shared to Doubleday or? I do, yeah. Um, uh, Doubleday interested me early on. And um, uh, we do know from Doubleday's own writings, and he wrote for what became Battles and Leaders of the Civil War. And um, he writes in his, his Gettysburg treatment uh, that uh, John Reynolds came to him at Marsh Creek and told him that um, he's, we're moving forward. And he says, I really don't expect any uh, major attack out there or, or run in with the enemy. Uh, but then he said, but if, if we do run into that, we are advised by the commanding general to fall back here. Now, someone would ask, so Reynolds Falls, west of Gettysburg, uh, Doubleday comes on the field and the fight continues. And you ask, why? Well, you know, um, I found a letter. This was in a private collection of a fellow in San Diego, California a letter written by the um, judge advocate of the third division of the first corps. That's, that's double days. And um, this letter was written on the 5th of August, 1863, to the brother 
of this um, uh, judge advocate, and uh, who had formerly served in a Pennsylvania regiment, uh, but now was, had served as judge advocate of the, of, this, of the division. And the letter advises his brother that um, uh, uh, he was present on the battlefield when Doubleday was advised that John Reynolds is dead. And Doubleday turns to his staff and says, I guess he meant now to have to defend this place. And he said, so I feel it's my obligation to continue. Ah, there's your answer. I mean, he, uh, it, it, it was a shocker to me. I, I called this fellow up and I said, gee, I, I really would love to have a, uh, a copy of that letter. And he says, well, you know, Kent, I, I got a divorce and I had to give up my stuff and have it sold and so forth. And I said, oh, no, you mean you don't have it? And he says, uh, oh, yeah, I have a photocopy. You know, I said, that's all I want, please. <laughs> so, but it, he shipped it to me. And if, you can see it in my book. But um, there, there it is. I mean, when Doubleday gets on the battlefield, he sees there's a fight going on. Reynolds is dead, but the first corps is out there fighting. And um, at least the other two divisions are. And so what does Doubleday say? Well, I guess he changed his mind. And that's what, that's what truly precipitated the whole thing. Any other questions? I have a question for you, sir. Yes. <clears throat> Well, I mean, um, the, uh, the, the operational commander of the Army is the one first responsible for whatever happens with respect to supply of the Army. Um, now, Meade was not responsible for the fact that Jeb Stuart got across the Potomac River and, and smashed his wagon trains coming in filled with quartermaster stores. And um, Meade had no, um, uh, Meade was not irresponsible in, um, in moving toward Gettysburg and, and occupying the high ground of Culp's and Cemetery Hills, uh, not knowing that by him doing that and the Confederate uh, troops attacking those positions would blunt 
any further uh, efforts to bring supplies into the army. You can't blame him for that. Uh, what Meade did try to do is open a supply depot at Westminster and uh, hopefully get that supplies rolling to the army. He wanted it at Westminster when they were at Pipe Creek because it was only seven miles different. Once he moved to Gettysburg, which, some, which occurred because of things totally out of his control, he was now 22 miles from it. And um, uh, what else could he have done? What else could he have done? You know, a lot of people have asked me about, um, uh, or, or have commented to me, well, but uh, can't, uh, don't you think Lee's army was in worse shape than, than Meade's? And uh, the answer to that is absolutely not. Meade's army, and I said, this usually comes as a shock to most people. But Lee's army uh, was actually, uh, uh, Lee's army was in better shape than George Meade's for this one reason. And that was that, Me that Lee's intentions moving across the Potomac River and getting into Maryland and particularly Pennsylvania was to forage his army. That became the major theme in my book on the retreat from Gettysburg. Uh, his purchased, impressed, and confiscated stores uh, that he took with him back to Virginia were absolutely astonishing what he got out of Pennsylvania. His quartermaster trains were 50, 60 miles in length filled with stores that the army had seized while in Pennsylvania. He came back from Pennsylvania with 30,000 head of cattle and 30,000 head of sheep. Now, some of them got swept along the Potomac River and wound up, you know, dead in, in front of Harper's Ferry. But most of them did not. Most of them got through. And I remember running across a diary of a Georgia soldier who at uh, Mount Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley uh, happened to see these herds of sheep and cattle and ask a herder, where did these come from? He says, they came from Pennsylvania. So think of this. Lee is, is foraging all, all across this part of Pennsylvania. He is coming back even to Gettysburg to confront his enemy here with herds of cattle and sheep. So when his forces are entered, enter into combat and then at the end of the day are called back, uh, they're called back to meat, food, uh, nourishment, where poor George Meade's troops are not. Think about it for a minute. They, it, 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 we, we go to Gettysburg and you see all these sites of division hospitals for all the different various corps in Lee's army and various divisions of corps in, in, in Lee's army. And there's usually a dwelling which is taken over by the hospital, the surgeons. And then around that, that, that dwelling are um, where all the troops are bivouacked. And so they come back to a situation where they have fresh meat, 
and are able to eat, and Medes do not. Uh, so by the time Lee begins to withdraw from Gettysburg, I mean, he's got plenty to feed that army. And um, all the way back to Mount Jackson, which is halfway between Winchester and Stanton. And uh, the same is true of his wounded, Lee's wounded. There is a receiving hospital in Winchester. Then there, are, then there is a wayside hospital in Mount Jackson. And then the general hospital for the Shenandoah is in Stanton, the deaf and dumb school. And so there is a systematic mechanism to take care of every wounded soldier there is, such that, and I counted this up when I was working on the book on the retreat from Gettysburg, 90% of the wounded soldiers in Lee's trains heading south after Gettysburg, 90% who reached Stanton survived, 90%. Now, that's an astonishing number. And um, those that didn't, their wounds were just too difficult. Uh, like Dorsey Pender gets down there and uh, he hemorrhages and uh, dies. But um, for most of those soldiers, uh, that system in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, where they go to Winchester, they're met by surgeons in Winchester. If they need to, if they can't take the, the journey farther, they take them out of those ambulances or wagons and hospitalize them right there. And they're taken care of. If they can get all the way to Mount Jackson, uh, it's a wayside hospital. The doctors come out, examine them all. Can you make it the next 50 miles? And if they believe they can, they go. If the doctor thinks he cannot, out he gets. And you know, Mount Jackson has its own Confederate cemetery. Now you know why. It's all those casualties from, from the Pennsylvania campaign. And um, so in so many aspects, Lee's army is simply better off than Meade's. Not because of anything Meade did or didn't do. It's what he was, what, the, what position he was given when he took command and uh, what happened thereafter. And again, he's the poster child for, for uh, um, rising above every kind of difficulty you can imagine, faced him. And um, I, I, I personally admire the guy for all that he did. Any other questions? Well, thank you all very much. <laughs> thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. 
Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.